Amen. Thank you, Chrissy, and praise team. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we look now at your word, it's living and active. Lord, your word is truth. We ask that you'd sanctify us in it. Lord, that we would know who we are and who we're not, who we once were, what we are becoming. And pray that we would live in light as we walk in the light. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm beginning the the reading at the end of verse 4, a little different than the bulletin. Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory." Now, we've been looking at this text for several weeks now. It reminds me of somebody that came up to uh, George Whitfield, a lady, that went, and she kept saying, every time I hear you preach, you're always preaching that you must be born again. Why do you keep doing that? And his reply was, because, madam, you need to be born again. <laughs> My point of this is, there is so much here for us. Do we really believe this? The title of this sermon is, Who Are You? A little bit of a reference to who are are you from the who. I really want to know, who are you? It's a question of identity. And the answer to the question, who are you, in many ways determines how you live your life. This text says tons about our identity. If you don't believe you have a purpose in life, Well, it's going to be hard to live life on purpose, isn't it? If you think deep down that you're junk, then the work that you're going to do is going to tend to be junky. You're going to date somebody junky, and you're going to marry somebody junky. If you have Donald Duck syndrome, what did Donald Duck go around saying? I'm a despicable person. And if you really think you're a despicable person, then you're going to do despicable things. And so this is an interesting uh, dichotomy or an interesting uh, kind of the seesaw. I think a lot of people in reformed circles were so big into total depravity that we get Donald Duck syndrome. And we talk about how wicked we are. And, they're, they're, and last week I did talk about, I gave lots of references to total depravity, okay? And total depravity is this doctrine that shows us the inability to save ourselves, We are not able to do that. Every faculty of our being, that's what total depravity means. All of our faculties, our heart, mind, will, 
everything about us has been so affected by, by sin that we're never, uh, we're not as bad as we could be, but we're never as good as we should be. But a lot of people, when they hear total depravity, they think utter depravity. And there's a big difference between total depravity and utter depravity, right? Nobody believes utter depravity because even as Parsi Sproul says, even Hitler didn't kill his mother. So we don't, nobody believes in utter depravity. You're not as bad as you possibly could be. Okay, so that's not what we mean at all, okay, by total depravity. Now, here's this interesting thing about uh, this seesaw I'm talking about as a, as a pastor. What do you wrestle with? Well, it's, it's, two, it's two things. One is until you know you're a sinner, you can't be saved, okay? Until you know you're saved, you can't stop sinning. So there's half of you, that, or I don't know the numbers, but many of you need to be convinced that you truly are a sinner so that you can really experience salvation. But then there's others that are beaten down by a sin and need to know you're saved so that you'll stop sinning. And so we come back to these two cheer-ups of the gospel. And Jack Miller, who started World Harvest Mission, which has now become Surge and started a lot of New Life churches, and there's... Um, his big two cheer-ups were this, and he used to say it all the time, cheer up. You're a, far, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that sounds kind of harsh at first, but the more you think about it, that's some really good news. Those are the two cheer-ups. Cheer up, you're much worse than you think. Cheer up, you're more dearly loved than you ever dared hope. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, I'm too good of a person for God to send me to hell or God's too good of a person to send me to hell. And I heard recently this, there was a debate between a universalist and a Unitarian. I didn't know they could differ with, with each other, but, but they can. And this was the debate. They were, dis, they were disagreeing. And um, here's what they disagreed about. Here's the difference between a universalist and a Unitarian. A universalist believes God is too good of a person to send anybody to hell. But a Unitarian believes that I am too good of a person for God to send me to hell. You see, the difference is just where you put the goodness. But the Bible doesn't teach either one of those views. So if you put that kind of worldview over the Bible and you're trying to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ and everything is in Christ. And in verse seven, we have this incredible truth that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. If you're thinking with a universalist or Unitarian mindset, this sounds like foreign language, mumbo jumbo. Tim Keller has a, a story that he tells. It, it, it kind of illustrates this. He says, imagine a boy and a girl, they're walking along a riverbank in love. The boy says to the girl, I love you so much. I want to show you how much I love you. I'm going to jump into this river and drown. And you say, that's an irrational. In order to prove love, the loved one must benefit from the one dying in some genuine way. If, however, the girl was drowning in the river and the boy said, I love her, I will die in, risk drowning and rescue her, that would make sense. Then he says, unless there's some objective benefit coming to the girl as a result of his dying, it's nonsense to talk about his death being an example of love. In short, if Jesus didn't have to, have to die because of some objective dire peril that we were in, 
then his death is nothing but a suicide and no exhibition of love at all. So we have to be awakened afresh to see our need for the gospel because we were drowning in the river of our sins and our selfishness and Jesus came down from heaven on this rescue mission to seek and save, not the found, to seek and save the lost. And so verse seven teaches us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's meant to be good news this morning. What does redemption mean? It means two things. Number one, redemption is a market term. It refers to buying back or redeeming by way of purchase. If your car gets taken to the impoundment lot and you go and you redeem it, you pay the price and then they redeem your car and it gets sent out to you. That's, that's, the, that's a, it's a market term. And an example of this in the Old Testament is from Leviticus 25 and it talks about slavery. It says, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. The idea is to buy him back. The second meaning is to free from bondage. It doesn't always just mean a market term because you know, it wasn't like they paid Pharaoh money to get Israel out of, out of Egypt. And, and uh, so certainly there's more to the term of rede- redemption than just market term. It also means to free from bondage. Deuteronomy 13.5 says, The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. So redemption has this twofold idea of being delivered from bondage, being set free, Okay. And this kind of just begs the question. Original reading audience is reading this. And they're reading, in him you have redemption through his blood. And they're a mixture of Jews, Greeks, uh, Gentiles, Persians, Roman citizens. They weren't under the thumb of any foreign government. They weren't enslaved economically. They weren't captive. How in the world are they redeemed? Answer? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. He says... He says, they answer to him as he's telling them that they're, they need to be set free from sin. And they say, we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Anytime you see that, that, that means underlining. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And then he went on to say, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Free from what? You see, free from sin. But sin has become this thing that doesn't get talked about anymore. Dr. Carl Menninger wrote years ago about where indeed did sin go? What became of it? He says, in all the laments and pro- reproaches made by our seers and prophet, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be the veritable watchword of prophets, It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does it mean that that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with the I in the middle? Is no no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only something that may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Taxes are being sown in the wheat field at night. But no one, is no one responsible? No one answerable for these acts? 
anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge even vague guilt feelings, but no one has committed any sins. It doesn't get talked about. It gets talked about here, but it, you know, nobody, nobody at work's telling you, oh yeah, so-and-so sinned. I mean, it's just, you don't use that term. Yet, you, you have no redemption unless you're under the category of S-I-N with the I in the middle for my selfishness. It was once a lady sitting under George Whitfield's preaching, and she was very, Whitfield was, was actually enabled to preach to the upper class and to the lower class. I mean, he preached to the coal miners, and when they started crying, they all left marks coming down from all the black underneath their faces. But he was also preached to the elite. And the Duchess of Beckingham, she commented back to Lady Huntington after he was invited to like speak to this lady study. And she heard Whitfield preach, and this was her response. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. She didn't really care for Mr. Whitfield's words, did she? Well, what about us this morning? Isn't there this element in us that we want to speak encouraging words? I want to, but I'm so critical and discouraging so often. I, I want to be humble, but I also really want people to notice me. And I really want to distinguish myself, that I stand out. I struggle with pride in the midst of trying to be humble. I, I want my, to moderate my responses. I want to be calm, cool, and collective, but I lash out in anger so often. I don't want to be controlled by what other people think of me. But deep down, my emotions go up and down like a roller coaster, depending on significant people and whether they give me the words of approval or not. I want to be a forgiving person, but deep down, I hold on to wounds, and I feed them, and I nurse them, and I take them to ICU. And I brew on them. Some think, well, I don't want to drink, but I need an escape from my pain. I want purity in my thought life. I give in to fantasies of the flesh. I want discipline in my spending, but then I splurge. I don't want to think hard thoughts about people, but I can hardly stop. I don't want to be a controlling person. I just want to be in control. Nietzsche said there are more idols in the, wor in the world than there are realities. I think he was right. Paul Tripp is a gauge of our souls this morning, says he asks a question, how is your present discouragement or disappointment, discouragement or grief a window on what has actually captured your heart? You see, cheer up. You're much worse than you think, but cheer up, you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Tim Keller says that he's, I've done plenty of counseling over the years and in counseling, people will often basically say, I'm a sinner because I'm a sufferer, meaning deep down it's really the other person's fault. But the Bible says you're a sufferer because you're a sinner. What comes first? What you need first is redemption. You need a ransom so your sins can be forgiven. You're not just a person who needs a little help. You're in captivity. You're not a person who simply needs a helper. You need a ransomer. You need a redeemer. Until we come under the fount first, we, we, counseling will have no, no help. 
So this idea that Jesus came to redeem us by his blood, this is who we are. He came to buy us back. It's this market term. We were slaves to sin. We were redeemed by an elder brother. We were just like Israel in bondage of slavery to the Egyptians, except our Egypt was sin. Our master wasn't Pharaoh, it was worse. It was the devil himself. We were under the prince of the power of the air and were by nature children of wrath. And we were redeemed by an outstretched arm and the mighty hand of God. And his miraculous intervention of bringing us out of slavery and sin was just as great and glorious as when he parted the Red Sea and brought his people out. And where the spirit of the Lord is, now there is freedom. So if the son sets you free, there is freedom. You see, this has everything to do now with our identity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you're not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So you see, our identity has everything to do with our behavior. Who are we? Do you not know your body is temple of the Holy Spirit? We've been bought with a price, so we glorify God now with our body. And so what this text is telling us this morning is that you've been adopted by God the Father in Christ, verses four to six. So you can say, I am adopted by God the Father. I am redeemed by God the Son, that's verses seven to 12, and I am sealed by God the Holy Spirit, that's who I am in Christ. The Godhead is at work for me, in Christ. Jesus went on a rescue mission to rescue me from my sin. And so in love, God predestined us for adoption. Now, adoption is this, it's, it's a family term. It's the highest, it's the, in theology, it's the apex, it's the glorious privilege above all the other privileges of justification and sanctification. We're adopted, we're part of his family. We've been, we're part of the table. Think of the prodigal son coming home. What did the prodigal want to do? He didn't want to be adopted. He said, make me a slave. I'll come back and I'll work it off. I'll work as hard as I can. Just make me like a hired servant. And I'll beat myself and I'll try harder and I'll do better. And what does the father do? After he ran to him and kissed him, what does he do? He restores him in every way possible. It's a picture of adoption, but it's also a picture of heaven He's like, no, no, quit. You're my son. Let me show you you're my son. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, get the best robe, put it on him. You're my son and kill the fatted calf, the only one, and kill it and we are gonna feast for my son who's lost has now been found. It's this, the idea of adoption. J.I. Packer put it like this in his book, Knowing God. He says, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my, re- my own real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. 
My savior's my brother, every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait on the bus, anytime your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it's all utterly and completely true. That's our identity. That will free us from fears. We're redeemed, we're adopted, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a guarantee of our inheritance. How are all these blessings come to us? And what, what this text is telling us is they all come to us because we're, we're in Christ, okay? But then this idea here in verse 13 and 14, it says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, guarantee is this idea, this is, it's this uh, commerce term that means initial down payment. It's an installment. It's the first installment. And we still have that a lot today. Um, and the difficulty is, is sometimes contracts are put down and, and, they're, and they're contingent. Here's the deposit, but it's contingent on the study period. And after 30 days, if for any reason I want out, I can get out. You know, kind of like when you go and, and you try and reserve, you know, a U-Haul truck. You know, and they want your name. They want your, your credit card number. They want everything reserved. But then they tell you, make sure you're here early because it's basically it's first come, first serve. And you're like, wait a minute. You've got my name. You've got my credit card number. You've got my phone number. And then you're telling me. It's first come, first serve. Like, get here early. Now, that is a total one-sided contract that only benefits who? Them. So if you get there and there's no truck, which often will happen, then what happens? Are they liable? No. That's not how God works at all. We looked at this morning in Genesis 15, this incredible passage where God walked between the pieces. It was a one-sided covenant, and God says, as the Lord, he walked between the pieces. And so this idea of sealing us with the Spirit as a guarantee of the deposit is that what he has begun in us, he has promised to complete. Who's the author of our salvation? He is. So if he's the author, he's the finisher. He's called the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. So he's, what he's begun, he's going to complete. And those whom he called, he's going to justify and he's going to glorify. He doesn't fumble or drop. What he begins, he completes. And so this is who we are now in Christ, this idea of a seal, we can use this term sometimes of a wedding ring. We, we, we put the wedding ring on someone's finger and it's a reminder, it's a seal. People even do this with their animals. They'll, they'll seal an animal, they'll brand it, and it's, you know, that's not coming out. You know, when that animal is sealed or branded. Well, that's just how this idea worked in the Old Testament. And what God is saying is that he has put, this is, here's a couple passages that also talk about us. 2 Corinthians one twenty two says, who also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Guarantee of what? It's a guarantee of our inheritance. 
that we will experience this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, and it will be here. Heaven and earth will become one. He's uniting all things. He even says that in this text. There's this, this fullness of time. In verse uh, 10, he says he's going to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. How's that going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us that Christ is coming back. The imagery I've used is the bowling illustration where, you know, you press that button after and half the pins are down and you press the button and thing comes down and it picks them up and then the old sweeper arm just knocks all the stuff laying down and everything comes back down again. Well, what's going to happen? Christ's going to come back for his people. He's going to lift them up. He's going to save his people. We'll meet him in the air. Then he says he's going to destroy everything by fire. The sweeper arm just whoop, sweeps everything, gonzo. And then he comes back down with his people and brings them all down. New frame. New heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And we're even going to have sanctified memories. And we will remember perfectly. And we will not have to have these constant reminders of things that we forget all the time. We will have it. And so now we live in this identity of who we are. And so now we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is where you're going. And so it's live in light of this. Don't hold on to grudges. Put away all bitterness, slander, clamor, malice, all those things, put them away. And be tender, kind-hearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ forgave you. And so this is who we are now in Christ, adopted, redeemed, given his spirit. And Paul puts those all together in Galatians 4 and, he, and some other place in the Bible. But in Galatians 4, here's an example where all three of these are put together. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. So we're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then we're an heir through God. So the question that remains is, why do you need that? Why do you need this encouragement? We need it every moment of every day. Because there's this element in us at least Fitzpatrick puts it like this. Whenever the gospel slips from our conscious thoughts, she says our religion becomes all about our performance and then we think everything that happens or will ever happen is about us. What, what translation? Our natural identity, our default mode is that we are the sum of our achievements. You wonder why everybody's so busy in our culture? Why is everybody so busy? And everything they always say is they're always telling you how busy they are. Why is that? Because we're idolaters. Deep down, we are trying to find our identity in what we do and what we achieve. And my children got to make it and we got to get into this school and we got to do this and we got to perform this and we got to do that and I got to do that. Why are we doing that? I, I think it's, be, and I have to be honest. I mean, I, this whole thing with the whole abortion clinic and trying to shut it down has been a somewhat of an identity reality for me because if I feel like it's going anywhere, man, then I'm, I feel great. And when it's not, I feel terrible. And I feel like, man, if I could do this, boy, wouldn't I be somebody? Repent. Repent. 
And I get frustrated by having to wait on the Lord. And it's really brought out like, well, who, where's your identity? Who are you really trusting in? Are you trusting in man or are you trusting in God? We naturally want to define ourselves by what we do. We want to prove our worth, that we have a niche in this universe. We measure our worth and our performance by our works. It's subtle, but what are we really doing? It's a subtle sanctification by our doing. And there's often unevangelized territories in our heart. And those unevangelized territories need to be exposed this morning. That you're a child of God, by God the Father. You're redeemed by his blood, the forgiveness of sins, by Jesus Christ. You're sealed by his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It doesn't say anything about what you did in chapter 1. It doesn't say anything about what you did in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Matter of fact, it says the faith, that too was a gift. But you are to do good works now. As Martin Luther says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So don't take this as sit back and do nothing. Well, Charlie said we're all busy. It's because we're idolaters. I'm just going to sit right back and watch football, and I'm going to have a good time. doesn't mean that. But why are we doing all these things? The gospel frees us not only from what others think of us, but what we think of ourselves. And this is what's going to give us the strength to find joy, to find what's going to uh, dethrone these idols. Matthew Henry put it like this. He's a Puritan writer. He says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put, put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. The reason why we need Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 to be reminded of our identity is so that we will, these, this other food will, will be like, that's terrible. I've got something so much better right here in Jesus that I'm satisfied with him. He's enough. I will rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, would you be enough? You are enough. Lord, we want to pray for you to take our hearts and seal it. And we're reminded, Lord, you already sealed them. They were sealed by you, not us. We offer ourselves afresh to you. Lord, you're the one who sacrificed everything for us. We thank you that we cannot change your love for us. And so we pray that we would rest here in Christ and that we'd know all the treasures that are found in him. Forgive us, Lord, for looking in all these other places to find our identity and our purpose. We pray that they would all be grounded in Christ so that you would get the glory. We pray that we'd do good for others in your name. We pray, amen.